Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. This episode is slightly longer because there was just so much helpful wisdom from this week's guest. Thalia Pellegrini is a nutritionist and I did kind of go deep with this one. There is also vulnerability towards the end of the episode where Thalia talks about her why. Why she does the work she does is related to a big loss. And you know me, I like to go deep with my guests. And in this episode, you're going to learn lots about how you can think about nutrition in a more balanced way. There is no perfect diet. There is no perfect way of eating. It is all uniquely tailored to you and your lifestyle. And letting go of that idea, that pressure to eat perfectly, also gives you the permission to choose wisely. Sometimes you'll drift away and sometimes you will struggle to keep up with the healthy diet. But you know what? Fish fingers is also food. So if you are a knackered mum who needs to have some nourishment and want to learn more about nutrition, this episode is for you. But if you're not a parent or you choose not to have children, there are so many nuggets in this episode about how we think about sugar, how we think about balancing our blood sugar, and also understanding more about hormones. If you are perimenopausal or menopausal, or you have issues around your period, um, PMS, PMT, then this episode is also for you. So let's dive in and introduce our guest. Thalia Pellegrini is a registered nutritional therapist. Following a decade as a broadcast journalist for the BBC, Thalia qualified as a nutritionist in 2009. Her specialist interest is women's health with a focus on perimenopause and she is known as a knackered mum's nutritionist. Her clinic is online and she works with women around the world. She offers her signature group program, the Energized Mum Method, the perimenopause solution for time-poor mums and also she offers her one-to-one plan called Revitalize for women wanting to address health issues ranging from PMS to perimenopause, weight loss, low energy and fatigue. And I don't know about you, but if you are tired at the moment, it is not your fault. And it might be that you get some brainwaves from hearing the information Thalia has to share. So welcome to the podcast, Thalia. We've had a nice chat already and I wanted to thank you for your patience because we're starting a little bit late recording so that I could finish my lunch, eating it mindfully. And I thought sending a picture to you of what I was eating today, I thought this would be, you know, right up your alley. You'd be really pleased to hear that I am trying to prioritize my nutritional intake uh, now that I am very much a knackered mum, like one of the ones that you serve. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation, not just because I think it'd be really beneficial for, for my audience, but also because of my own personal reasons. I'm happy to learn more about nutrition as well. So I've got loads of questions for you and I'm hoping that we can go quite deep on how we can energize as knackered mums using nutrition. Absolutely. Can't wait. Can't wait. Cool. Well, let's dive in. Um, 
one of the things that I see a lot in my community um, when it comes to nutrition is that it becomes a very regimented thing. Like I need to just kick myself into gear, a lot of self-criticism, um, you know, this idea that nutrition has to be a something I just start doing. Now suddenly I'm going to go on a diet or I'm going to change my ways, I'm going to cut out all the sugar, or I'm going to stop eating gluten. And it becomes very punitive, very linked to um, mm. restriction. So I wonder if if you see anything like that in the women you serve and what are your thoughts around how we have this kind of relationship with food as a punishment and reward um, overall? I think it's probably true that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the women that come to see me have what I call a disordered approach to eating. So we're not talking about eating disorders, mm. we're talking about a relationship with food that is complicated, that is just as you describe, mired in shoulds and shouldn'ts, guilt, shame, restriction, punishment, usually, almost always, learn in childhood. So one of the things I do with my clients is I go right back to childhood, and that's where we see so many of the patterns of how we eat and our relationship with food develop. Um, and I've heard, I've heard everything. I've, I've heard all sorts of stories. And then it's no surprise whatsoever to hear that you're in your 30s or your 40s and you still feel that food is a difficult relationship in your life. And you know what? That's exhausting in itself. That is um, a drain of energy. If your mind every day is filled with should I, shouldn't I? Is that okay? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have eaten that. I won't eat, I'll eat better later. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. So my approach is very much, we come to food from a place of self-compassion and nourishment and kindness to ourselves. And what's fascinating to me is women instinctively teach their children to eat that way, but they often don't have that approach themselves and they have to relearn it. They have to be offered the opportunity to explore that in a new way for themselves. So I see that all the time. And when you talk about perfectionism around food, I have to confess that when I started in my business in terms of being visible, when I started um, to uh, be a presence on social media, I really held back a lot because I felt the pressure from my peers, you know, and they were very, you know, so many of my peers or my children don't eat gluten and there's no sugar in my house and um, this, uh, this is how we eat as a family. And I remember thinking, well, I don't eat like that. My kids eat fish fingers you know, there's sugar in my house. And then over time, as I gained experience, I understood that actually that was a superpower, not a failure on my part, because that realistic approach to eating is so much easier to maintain. And I think it's an honest approach. And I'm not convinced of, of people who say they never have any sugar in their house or their kids don't eat sugar. I feel that that's a much more um, self-compassionate approach to how we eat both for me as an individual and as a family. Mm. It becomes possible to implement it if we have realistic expectations for the eventualities of life. Um, mm. I remember that moment where I was lying on the sofa, uh, you know, with the baby on top of me, you know, she's now one and my other one is six, but the baby lying on top of me and just in whatever leap or clingy stage and wouldn't let me, you know, go and cook. And I was just exhausted from sleep deprivation and I was like, I cannot make myself go and make food. And obviously knowing that this, the fiber all the time needed to eat. And my sister was like, but you do know that 
fish fingers is also food, right? Like oven food, beige food is also food. It's still that's why it's called beige food because it's still it still has you know it has sustenance, and not every single meal that we make has to be you know nutritional perfection. So I I love that learning around how is nutrition across the week that matters for little ones mm. rather than each individual meal. That that took a lot of pressure off me when oh, I was. Sure. Um, feeding my little one when he was uh, he was young so you said the sort of this idea of perfection you know when people expect their nutritional intake to be quote unquote perfect what what does that lead to what kind of patterns do you see first of all I'm not sure what a perfect diet even looks like as a nutritionist I don't I don't know what that would realistically look like each day if you put that kind of pressure on yourself to eat a certain way what that looks like is a poor relationship with food ultimately it's certainly not a nourishing approach to eating because side by side to that approach it's always going to be a sense of failure because who eats a perfectly curated plate of food three times a day genuinely i don't believe anyone does hmm. so that is an approach I, I really encourage women in my clinic to move away from and it takes as you say it takes so much pressure off their shoulders you know, when I qualified back in 2009, I was pregnant with my first son and I had all these ideas about how I would support women because I knew I wanted to specialise in women's health. And then I had my first son six months later and it was quite a humbling experience um, because I realised that knowing how to nourish myself and being actually able to do that within the clamour of early motherhood particularly were two different things, very different things. I had my second son um, when my first son was just turned two and I had two babies at two, basically, at two. And I had to learn from the beginning how to nourish myself in a realistic way as a mum, how to feed my children and how to feed myself. And understanding that actually feeding myself was really important. I was thinking about that this morning, knowing we were having this conversation. I thought about that first year of motherhood, which I found very difficult, very isolating. I did not look after myself. My journey to parenthood was very challenging. So I thought that I had to pour all my energy into my children. It was hubris somehow to think that I, get, I still got to look after myself. And I learned the hard way, the impact of that. And I realized ultimately that my sons weren't getting the best of me. If my goal was to, to, to love them wholeheartedly, that involved them having a happy, healthy mum. So that helped to define my business. And that was part of my learning um, as a nutritionist and a mum to work out how, what, what does nourishment really look like? And some days it is fish fingers and oven chips and frozen peas. And that is absolutely fine, you know. And it's almost just even verbalizing that permission to yourself that, it's okay to have days where it's quick and easy and mm. bish bash bosh is in the oven and you focus on whatever it is you need to focus on, you know, a crying ill child or, you know, sitting down because it's too much effort to even consider cooking something and knowing that it sort of waxes and wanes, doesn't it? I mean, I was saying in the beginning of our chat today before we recorded that I'm now really pleased to be able to spend the time on cooking more nourishing meals for myself. So I have the you know privilege of working from home for myself. And now I've just finished my second um, maternity leave. So I'm enjoying fueling myself with nourishing food. And the way 
I shifted my thinking around that rather than what diet am I eating? It was more like, how can I feed myself nourishing food? And that really shifted things for me because I don't calorie count. I don't look at what I eat in that sense at all. And obviously being a clinical psychologist, calorie counting is a big no-no anyway. So I just, I was just so inspired also watching some of your videos on your Instagram account where you talk about some of these pressures around you know modern day eating like for instance around sugar or gluten i wonder if we can talk a bit more about that and give some permission to the listeners to find a balanced uh, view around that so what was your take on you know sh- the sugar intake we have today sugar is a huge one isn't it i know that if i don't eat sugar i feel amazing i mean truthfully i've given up sugar completely probably three or four times in the last of 10 10 years um, and I have incredible clarity, my concentration is better, my sleep is better, but I have a sweet tooth as well. So what I have learned is that a forgiving approach to sugar is quite important. And because I really encourage people to see food as joyful and as nourishing and it's part of celebration and joy, you know, love, a loving um, life, sugar plays a part in that. You know, when you sit down with a, you know, from a meal with your family and someone's made a dessert, what, what, of course we should have some of that dessert and eat it with no guilt and enjoy it. So my relationship with sugar is very much one of balance. Um, and I know that if I have a day when I eat tons of sugar, I'm probably not going to feel the best the next day. And I'm fine with that. I understand that. It's all about, for me, it's about enjoying food and sugar is part of that. Hmm. With my kids... I think teaching them that it is part of a healthy diet is actually really important. We can be quite militant about sugar, and particularly in my industry, and I don't think that's healthy. If what I'm trying to do is raise two healthy eaters, I don't think denying them or telling them something is forbidden is healthy. My son's going to turn 13 next year. He goes to school and he can buy his lunch with a thumbprint. You know, there is a degree to which he is um, sort of on his own in the world. I'm trying to teach him good choices. I teach him that too much sugar will affect his mood, it will affect his, his concentration, it will affect his skin, you know, he's a, he's a preteen. But within that, you get, to, you get to eat sugar, that's your choice. Balance it with something nourishing. If you want pudding at lunch, that's great. Make sure you have some protein, okay? Make sure you have some fruit or veg if you can. So it's a gentle approach. So when it comes to sugar, I think it, we just have to be a little bit sensible and say, you know what, it's part of life, that's fine. It's about balancing everything else we eat alongside it now some of my colleagues won't agree with that so. mm. <laughs> um, but I feel like that as a mum particularly raising two older you know children who are um, one is at secondary school one's about to be at secondary school I think that is more sensible I remember my um my cousin was really militant about sugar raising her two boys there was no sugar in her house at all and when they went to secondary school she would find she'd go up to the bedrooms and she would find sweet packets shoved down the back of the bed and there was sort of shame because they didn't want mum to yeah. know that they'd eaten sugar. That's not healthy. Yeah. So for me, the way I'm approaching it, even though healthy inverted commas may differ from you know one expert to another, that feels um, more sensible to me. But I guess that's that's taking a functional, pragmatic approach tailored to the women who you serve, knowing that if it's too strict or too regimented, it will trigger shame. And any activity where we are hiding what we do is linked with shame because I don't want someone to see this. It's either we fear punishment, you know, I'm going to be told off by my mum because I hit, you know, ate the sugar, 
or I feel shame because I feel like I failed. I'm not measured up. So I, I, I'm bad. I've done something bad and I am bad for eating this and, and the food becomes bad. So I definitely resonate with that approach of taking a balanced view on it um essentially because i see so often that people go out with sort of a, a good intention of starting to eat healthily changing their habits and then it's almost like a pendulum swing they go too far to the extreme on one end and that is impossible to adhere to because you you know we live in the uk you go to a kid's birthday party they serve beige food and suddenly, if you have to say no and restrict everywhere, it's impossible to adhere to. So then you go, F it, I've slipped, and then kind of fling back to the other extreme where you start to then feel guilty, feel ashamed, and start to use food as a, as a way to comfort yourself and feel, feel good again. And suddenly, kind of, the spiral goes round and round. So I'm wondering, is there anything that makes that more likely to happen? I mean, I'm not, I really not want to caveat this by saying, we're not saying cut out all your sugar, but does eating too much sugar also give a more likelihood that we, you know, what happens to our blood sugar when we eat too much refined sugar? Do we then crave more of that? Does that sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy itself? If a woman says to me she, she can't get through the day without sugar, she needs sugar, then that for me is an important starting point because she's not eating well overall if that's what's happening. So the problem won't be the sugar. The problem, problem will be what else she isn't eating and what we need mm -hmm. to. I always talk about crowding out the crap. Instead of taking food out, what can we add in? Because that feels immediately less punitive if we talk about, right, what can we add in to nourish you? Eat exactly what you're eating, but what else can go in? And sugar is really fundamental to that. So if you are existing on sugar and usually caffeine as well, that's mm. what I see a lot in my clinic, then we need to talk about what it is that's missing. And, you know, it's about just learning to eat instinctively so that you are understanding what your body needs. When we talk about blood sugar. That is kind of nutrition 101. So when we talk about our hour to hour energy through the day, it has everything to do with our blood sugar levels. So if you imagine we've, we've slept, we've been asleep, hopefully, for most of the night but if you're a, a you know parent with young children that might not be a given but you know you wake up and you want to break your fast you you haven't eaten anything since the night before what are you going to eat the first thing you you, you know when you, when you get up in the morning or whether you choose to eat later lots of women will go for a cup of tea or coffee toast and jam maybe a bowl of cereal you know wolf down between tasks or getting the kids out to school so what happens, that shoots up their blood sugar, that's a big source of glucose, it goes up, and then about an hour and a half, because there's nothing to sustain their blood sugar, it's going to plummet down. And then they're going to be looking for another caffeine or sugar intake too, because their brain is screaming for energy at that point. And that is a pattern of, if you imagine a, you know, a roller coaster, that is a pattern that most women exist in for years and years and years. And that is really detrimental to our, our overall energy. So when we talk about blood sugar balance, we want to um, start the day with a nourishing meal. I would say most of the women that come to see me do not eat enough protein, and they certainly don't start the day with enough protein. Mm. It's astonishing. I, you know, I have a free um, recipe collection on my, my website for, for five-minute breakfasts. I will say to a woman, just for seven days, I want you to change your breakfast and then tell me how you feel. And they are always astonished at how much better their energy is through the day. And it's just for the simple reason that they have managed their blood sugar better because mm. how you start the day will always define how you eat for the rest of the day. Always. Because mm. if you're starving mid-morning, you have a quick, you know, a quick snack, which probably isn't going to serve your energy. 
that's going to get you through a couple of hours and then it's going to plummet again. And that is a cycle that's really hard to break. If you start the day with a, a breakfast that has some protein, some healthy fats, some fiber, your full protein is a you know, satiety macronutrient, healthy fat slows down, the breakdown slows down the metabolism of protein, you're going to feel much more energized and you're going to feel able to make a more sensible choice at lunchtime. And just those small, simple changes can be really impactful to your day-to-day energy. You can still have sugar alongside that if you choose to, but it's not existing on sugar. That's that's where I see the problems. Mm. And that in itself becomes an act of self-compassion because if you're feeding yourself good nutrients first thing, it makes it easier for you to continue to make wise choices about your food. Whereas if you're setting yourself up, um, I mean, I was going to say for failure, but you know what I mean. If you're setting yourself up uh, with a very rushed kind of wolf down meal that doesn't have the right balanced nutrients, and then beating yourself up for making a poorer choice later on as well, it's almost like the cycle continues of um, needing to have things to help ward off the crash and then beating yourself up and that self-criticism feeds into it as well so I wonder could you let us know where to find those quick recipe tips because I'm sure lots of people want to download that yeah if you go to my website thaliapellegrini.com you'll find the um, you'll find the sign up to to receive that that free collection so thank you very much for you know alerting the listeners to where they can find those would you be able to give you know one quick tip of a kind of breakfast that you know for those who are new to nutrition like so what is a nutritionally complete breakfast that will help your blood blood sugar levels for the morning can you give one tip lots of people especially uh, in the winter will opt for porridge and they think it's a healthy breakfast and uh, it will see them through the morning but the truth is it is entirely carbohydrate you have a little protein in your milk but it's entirely carbohydrate and you'll burn through it very quickly. So we really want to add some protein to that really common breakfast. So there's lots of ways to do that. So you have your foundation of your oats and your milk. I always say, please have full fat milk because you want to benefit from the healthy fats that are in that full fat milk. You will um, benefit more than if you have a skimmed um, equivalent. And then you can, I add chia seeds to my oats when I cook them up with milk. Um, I add ground almonds to um, my porridge once it's cooked. You might add some nut butter. You might um, add some chopped banana for some fiber in there as well as as your oats. Um, So you can do a really simple porridge, but just um, add a little to it so you've got some more protein going into you. Um, You know, hemp seeds can be sprinkled on top. Uh, Yeah, nuts and seeds are a really great hack for adding protein to any meal and it works for breakfast as well and you will notice a difference in your energy through the morning if you've added some protein to your breakfast first thing oh, you know eggs are a perfect breakfast a couple of scrambled eggs on toast really takes a couple of minutes mm. it doesn't matter how you cook them you can poach them you can fry them you can boil them a couple of eggs on toast is a good breakfast as well mm. Thank you for, for kind of almost like layering up something you're already doing with a small tweak makes it a much easier behavior mm. change than suddenly I have to make it something completely different. Yes. But if you already have porridge, for instance, you use oats already and, you know, it's easy to, to give to the kids, then sprinkling in a, a tablespoon of chia seeds is it's not a big shift. And like you said in the beginning, making sort of these smaller shifts will have um, a big outcome and big impact. 
how should we think about things like seeds and nuts? Because I've been sort of hearing in the grapevine about seed cycling and the impact on our hormones. Can we touch a bit on that? <laughs> seed cycling is an interesting one. There are, again, some practitioners who are really recommended and use it in their clinic. I don't use seed cycling. I'm not persuaded by the evidence. You know, that just because it's not there doesn't mean that it's not um, beneficial. But from my mind, it's just another thing to do because with seed cycling, you start, you know, the first half of your cycle, you have certain amounts of certain seeds. And in the second half of your cycle, post-ovulation, you have different set of seeds in different quantities. Well, for me, that's just something else to do. I've got enough to do. I don't need to be thinking about how many tablespoons of sunflower seeds should I be eating today? Where am I in my cycle? That's my personal approach. I kind of say, you know what? Seeds are fantastic. They're a great source of protein. They're a source of healthy fats. They're a source of zinc. There's so many benefits to them for our hormonal cycle. So just eat them, enjoy them, have, have whatever seeds you want each day. It doesn't matter. The important thing is that they're going in. You know, flaxseed, ground flaxseed is fantastic for hormonal balance in women. Hemp seeds are a great source of protein and essential fat. Sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, all of them are great. So if they're going into your, um, your food, you, you know, each day in some quantity, you know, we could be talking about a tablespoon is sufficient. I think that's a great approach without it needing to be um, prescriptive. Mm. That's really helpful. And again, links with this idea of having a balanced, realistic view around uh, our food intake, because I heard the word should, how much should I eat of sunflower seeds? And then we come back into this regimented uh, idea that almost like I curate my food intake, and it's very difficult to live like that. So I'm very glad to hear that. I was almost worried that you were going to say, so this is what you do in week one, two, three, four, and so on. And I'm like, oh, it's another, <laughs> it's another thing to add to my mental load of what I should be doing exactly we don't need it we just don't need it no i'm really happy to hear that because i think modern day society can be really difficult to think about what is healthy eating without it becoming lots of these prescriptive uh ways of thinking about food and you know it brings up a a lot of concerns for for my audience as well like well if i eat things that have full fat milk for instance what about the environmental impact maybe i should have gone dairy free Maybe almond milk is better than cow's milk. Or maybe, you know, it's like you hear the kind of the thoughts, uh, the worried thoughts ramp up um, and thinking, how is it? How is it enough? When will I be doing enough with my food intake? Have you got any ideas around that of how people can just make peace with whatever food they're eating? It's so integral to the work I do with women, if I'm being honest, is to encourage that self-compassionate approach to food and it does take it can take some time and some work it depends on where you're starting from um you know i have a, a group program and at the moment i have it's just the way it's happened there's sort of three or four women in my group at the moment all who have really um who really struggle with the dieting i've i've guided them away from counting calories and you know one of them sort of confessed in a recent session said i'm so sorry but it was so difficult to pour olive oil into into a frying pan because she's been using a spray oil for 15 20 years or you know one of them said but i i did a i'm not going to mention the name but you know a well-known dieting app and it told me not to have an avocado because there was too many calories in it and i should have a bag of crisps because mm. there was lower calories and they know instinctively that doesn't feel right mm. but they are so the you know the patterns of behavior are so deeply ingrained because they've been eating this way or thinking about food this way for decades and they watch their mothers think about food this way and even as adults their mums are still saying to them well are you losing any weight 
what if you're not losing any weight and sometimes it's about making peace with our bodies and that's about you know how we feel about ourselves and self-esteem so when we talk about nutritional therapy it's often not as simple as you know i'd like you to eat some more proteins from more fruit and vegetables it's incredibly complex it's about so much more than what's on our plate um and for me food and energy um is is so fundamental to how we live our lives mm. i always say to my clients food is not just fuel you know i'll have women say to me if i could just take a pill with all the things i need that would be great then i wouldn't have to cook i wouldn't have to think about food and that breaks my heart mm. because i think food is such a tremendous part of our lives it adds so much richness richness and celebration to our lives even on a daily basis so food is inf information for our bodies food is information it is it's information for ourselves it tells our hormones what to do it, it gives us our vivacity and our vibrancy each day you know when we are stuck in a cycle of denial of shoulds and shouldn'ts that ultimately for me is self-neglect hmm. and over time it it diminishes our energy it diminishes how we feel about ourselves because it is impossible to extract from our self-esteem Mm. because of like as we, we talked about earlier it's that I, I shouldn't have eaten that I'm a failure I, I you know I'm weak I always say to women it's nothing to do with willpower how we eat has nothing to do with willpower it's all about how we feel about ourselves what we've learned you know how, what we've been exposed to over our whole lives when it comes to food and that it's a beautiful permission in itself as well to say that it's okay to have times when you slip away, even if you've kind of started to implement new healthy habits around your eating and how you, you know, how you nourish your body with food, that times you will slip away from that. You will be, you know, falling into the conditioning you've grown up with and where food was something that had to be finished on the plate to be a good girl. And as there's a lot of, you know, we kind of thinking of sort of 80s parenting style, which was like you stay at the table and finish your plate. Um, you know, I'm not going to slag off my parents on the podcast, but you know, they did the best that they could with what they had. We were thinking that, you know, need mm. to finish your food. And I remember, because I really struggled with eating meat when I was little. So there's no surprise that I was vegetarian for many years. And I still sort of like a vegan or vegetarian dish. I remember being made to sit and finish like Sunday dinner with some sort of meat that would just grow in the mouth uh, as I was chewing it. And I remember hiding it in the bin and put stuff on top of it because I didn't want to eat it. And I'm sharing that memory because this is how emotional memories are sort of linked to our food experiences. And I wonder if that's something that you can touch upon. You, you started thinking about uh, intuitive eating or instinctively kind of eating what you think your body needs. What are your thoughts around that, around people who feel, well, I don't want to eat meat as a protein, for instance, uh, but my body still needs protein? How can we think about that? I think there's two, two questions there. Intuitive eating is an is a, a established approach. I'm not an intuitive eating coach. That's not how I work. When I talk about intuit eating intuitively, I guess I'm talking about what, you, what feels good to you. What does your body need today? If you feel cold, you what do you want something warming today? Your period is due, you're craving carbohydrate, giving yourself permission to respond to that. You know, um, in terms of um, instinctive eating, that's more about um, looking at a plate of food and going, 
that looks great. That looks delicious. I'm happy with that. I can see that there's, you know, in, in the in initial stages of working with me, I might be explaining to women, you know what, we may need some protein with each, with each meal. It'll be great to get something green or some vegetables with each meal. So that ultimately they're looking at a plate of food going, yeah, I've got, I've got the things that I need to nourish my body. Great. I'm good. So that's, that's different, I think, to, to how I work. I'm not an intuitive eating coach. I think it's absolutely true that everyone has a way of eating that suits them, by which I mean, I think there are natural vegetarians. I think there are people that really need meat, um, that they that feel, you know, at best when they, I've seen vegetarians start to eat meat and feel much better. And, and the opposite is true. So that's why there's no prescriptive way of eating. And we need to learn that because we might not have been raised in a way that allowed that possibility. This, this week, I had a client who was telling me about uh, at her school, you couldn't get up from the table unless you finished your lunch. Um, and she used to hide food in her socks. And she said you had to finish everything. So if you were given a donut and you didn't eat your donut, you had to sit in the canteen for hours. And she is um, just been diagnosed with ADHD. So she has autistic children. And now she recognizes those patterns from her own childhood and recognizes that for her, you know, texture was, was so important and, and what just felt very difficult for her. Um, so we learn these things as, as we yeah. get older. And I think permission is so, um, such a key word. So often when I talk to clients, permission is about the permission they give themselves. It's not external. It doesn't come from anyone else. It's about them allowing themselves to eat the way they want to eat, to explore a certain way of eating, to be okay with the fact that some days it all goes to hell and that's okay. Hmm. There are always days when the kids are sick or you're sick or work is crazy busy and you have existed the whole day on, you know, crisps and coffee. Um, and to say, that's fine, tomorrow I'll start again and I'll, 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 I'll aim for nourishment tomorrow. And if that doesn't happen, that's okay. It's that self-compassion piece that always runs through my work. Um, because like you say, there's no such thing as perfection. So the best we can do is aim to nourish ourselves each day in whatever way that feels right to us. Hmm. Like some days it might be that the most nourishing thing you can do is to go for a takeaway because you just need food to be on the table hmm. uh, or you take something out of the freezer. And obviously there are things we can do to try to get ahead, you know, say having... Uh, you know, nourishing food that you put in the freezer for these these eventualities when the kids are sick, you just literally take something out and microwave it. That can be, you know, part of planning and um, and making sure that you are aware that this is going to happen. There will be times where everyone in the family is ill or you don't feel like cooking anything. So we kind of touched upon that. But I wonder also this idea of permission and I wonder how that's shown up for you because you've shared before that you, you know, fall into habits of people-pleasing how how does permission and people-pleasing relate to nutrition for me it was learning to look after myself as well as my children so there was a huge shift for me as I became a mother before my kids I was really um good at looking after myself because I was three years training before um, I became a mum um training to be a nutritionist so I learned a great deal and I learned a lot I had chronic fatigue syndrome in my late teens and early 20s and I was very ill and I wasn't getting better and I would see my GPs and they would say look there's nothing we can do you have Epstein-Barr virus you'll probably grow out of it meanwhile I was in my 20s I'd graduated from university and I was still struggling 
and a nutritionist changed my life. And she taught me how to eat better and she helped heal me basically. So I, I have been very engaged in what serves me in terms of my energy for a very long time. Motherhood definitely exploded that and I kind of had to learn again how to nourish myself. But to be honest, the people pleasing and permission for me isn't about food. It's about everything else in my life. <laughs> it's about how I behave in relation to, to conflict or confrontation, all of those things, but probably not food for me. Um, but, you know, I'm Greek. So for me, um, food is love. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother just fed us. You know, if we weren't eating, she wasn't showing us love. Yeah. So I, that's, I'd say in terms of my mothering, I have to really watch that. I have to watch um, treating with sugar. Mm. I try really hard not to refer to sugar as a treat, not to reward with food, because for me that was really a huge part of my, my childhood. Um, it's, and it's not just the Greek culture, it's so many other cultures, right? Mm. Uh, but it was all about food was comfort and food was celebration big family meals but basically eat 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 but i you know i look back with with you know great affection for for all the wonderful meals that were put in front of me as a child but yeah i was you know i was quite peaky child i didn't always want to eat um but i was i was lucky i was never it was always eat what you can you know i was never forced to clear my plate like my husband still in his late 40s has to clear a plate because he was he was not allowed up from the table unless he did mm. and now we have to i have to say if the kids don't want to finish their food that's okay because probably i've put too much on their plates because mm. <laughs> there's still the feeder in me the green mm. feeder is still, she's still there so i probably put too much on their plates so you know we live and learn don't we we're still still um learning to to find a happy relationship with um, with food we do live and learn. I guess that's sort of very compassionate insight as well of like how hard it is to unpick some of these patterns that were laid down before you had abstract thought, before you had ability to step back and question these practices. And again, sending a thought of compassion to our parent generation because they were also just trying to raise us and love us and, and feed us and sustain us as well. So it sounds like this could have been a recipe for disaster with your sort of loving feeding and your husband's like need to clear the plate so just being conscious of that and curious about <laughs> what how does that show up i find that very triggering at christmas uh from swedish culture because we have the sort of the smorgasbord or like basically buffets of food and people go up for like seven eight plates of food uh it can be really triggering i find that sort of i'm kind of feel full and and done and have had enough after like a couple of plates and then everyone just keeps going uh, and then, you know, the collective food coma that everyone is in and everyone feels ratty and horrible. So I guess it's just that's that is where we can connect to people pleasing is like, how do I choose a way of relating to food that serves me? Um, you know, if we live in a household with other people, like lots of us do, we have to compromise of how we cook. You know, the children don't eat certain things or your partner doesn't want to eat things. And also saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm full. You know, my mum was my mama's um, still uh, does what my grandmother did. You know, she we if we go to her house on a Sunday, there's so much food. There's so much food always, um, and she just loves to see us eat. And don't you want any more? Would you? And I think many years ago, I probably would have eaten more to please. Mm -hmm. And now I say no, thank you. I'm full. That was delicious, but I'm full. Mm. 
So that's a good permission to give yourself to be able to set that boundary with others, you know, with kindness and respect and gratitude for appreciation for the meal that they put in front of you. Like, oh, that was so delicious. Um, but resisting that urge to go, I'll have more because it's put in front of me. But as you know, lots of cultures have different uh, ideas of what this means. You know, if you actually in some cultures, you have to leave food on the plate because otherwise it, it signals that you were saying this was not a sufficient portion and you were actually being really stingy. Give me more food, please. So there's obviously being aware of your own family culture within your own history and also your wider cultural context of, of where you've been raised and how people view food. So uh, lots of lots of things to unpack there. And I guess that makes sense for why it's called nutritional therapy. Because there's lots of patterns to unlearn uh, or unpick, lots of insights to have and and behaviors to change. And I wonder what what's been most inspiring to you, um, you know, as a business owner doing this work. You know, you have your group program, you have your retreat, all the offerings you have. What's been you know most inspiring and purposeful for you as, as part of this journey? I love my one to one work. So even within my group program, there is a one to one element because. Nutritional therapy is very bespoke, so there's no cookie cutter advice. If you want to transform someone's energy, you need to understand where they've come from. You need to understand their relationship with food. And remember, we're talking about health. We're not just talking about women coming to me because they're tired and they want to eat better. We'll be looking at hormonal imbalance. That's my specialism is hormonal imbalance. So what's driving that? So I love my one-to-one work because I was a journalist for many years. So I love the story element I love drawing out people's stories because it, it we learn so much about who they are now and where they've come from and that is very important when we talk about their relationship with food and healing as well what I've really loved about my group work is bringing women together because uh, it's a very powerful thing to observe when women come together because they're so supportive they take so much strength from, from each other often I think we can just hide a lot because we feel embarrassed or like it's a source of shame. So when you, when I have women together in a nutritional therapy session and we talk about approach to food, when we talk about dieting, when we talk about secret eating, all of those things, um, for a woman to say, oh, it's so wonderful that someone else does that, that's really validating to know mm-hmm. that you're not the only one. You haven't done anything wrong. Um, it, there, there is no such thing as a perfect diet. Um, I like to say I'm, I'm perfectly imperfect. I hold my hand up and say, I get through the day the best way I can. I nourish myself the best way I can. Some days that looks great. Sometimes that does not look good. That's okay. And passing that on to a group of women who may have had that disordered approach to eating their whole life that we discussed already. I love that. I find that really powerful. That's often the heart of the transformation is when they shift how they see food and their relationship to food and that's when nourishment starts and once you start that that's when energy can transform and that's when healing can happen you know it's my job to guide and to say okay well we have this going on for you as well you know you have this gut issue or this thyroid problem or this hormonal imbalance and we need to address it but at the heart of it it has to start with how you want to feel about yourself and in yourself and that's what group work is wonderful Mm. for so I love that yeah, I absolutely concur with everything you just said. It's, I see that as well in my groups, that there's something about the corrosiveness around shame that sort of seems to wither away when someone takes that first vulnerable plunge and shares something and everyone else goes, yeah, me too. And I see it in my own group coaching program in Bright, uh, where 
someone says something that I've already said, you know, in a different kind of way and hearing it from another human being, another fellow companion on the same journey is so healing. It's like, yes, it's not just me. And it's not just hearing it from this personal, you know, professional person I pay uh, and hearing their sort of professional wisdom. It's just hearing it from another soul just like me. And I find that that's, um, you know, the, the group impact is very powerful, you know, the sense of community and togetherness that we have around making any sort of challenging changes to our life. You've talked a bit about sort of hormonal impacts. What what do you see? And, you know, you specialize in perimenopause. What's significant there around sort of women who are, you know, early 40s or even late 30s? What, what do you see as kind of mm-hmm. common telltale signs uh, that someone might be starting to hit men- perimenopause? It can be, you know, we, we think of menopause as sort of hot flushes and night sweats, but actually the transition to menopause. So to be clear, menopause is when you had 12 consecutive months without a period. At that point, you are postmenopausal. So I always say menopause is the destination and perimenopause is the journey to it. And for some women, it can last 10 years, sometimes more. Mm. So you can easily be 38, 39 years old and be perimenopausal. What does that look like? Well, you can have a regular cycle and be perimenopausal. Again, women think, well, my period's regular, so it's not perimenopause. It might look like anxiety. It might look like cognition challenges where you can't finish a sentence like you used to. It might be skin changes. It might be palpitations, sleep disturbance. Now, bear in mind, I'm seeing women who are who might have just started their family in their late 30s, early 40s. Mm. And I see postnatal depletion in my clinic all the time. So I have clients who have postnatal depletion who are perimenopausal and it's a hormonal shit show because Mm. they are literally, they're depleted from their pregnancy, they're breastfeeding or they're they're not sleeping, they're not eating properly and they have these hormonal fluctuations starting. And when those things come together, it can be very challenging. So it might look different to many women. So I, I look after perimenopause, but I look after PMS, period pain, endometriosis, PCOS, you know, I haven't had a client yet whose PMS or period pain I haven't been able to resolve entirely in three to six cycles. It always breaks my heart when a woman will say, I've been doubled over with pain for 20, 25 years every month. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been told that's just, just put up with it. Just take some painkillers. PMS the same where two weeks of their month mm-hmm. can be given to feeling really teary, really um, anxious, overwhelmed. And again, that can just be nutritional deficiencies. It can be that they're, they've not nourished themselves very well for a very long time. So it's all of those things together. You can have PMS and be perimenopausal. So if you feel like, if you feel that your behavior or your mood um, is cyclical in any way, the chances are it's probably to do with your, your hormones. Mm, fascinating. I mean, we could have a whole podcast specifically just about that, but I guess it's sort of also linking to what we said in the beginning before we pressed record around how hard it is for women who are knackered, who are looking after everyone else, meeting everyone else's needs, to then give themselves that permission mm. to say, I'm going to feed myself too. And we, I used the example of how I often see women who make really healthy lunches or breakfast for their family and then skip a meal themselves or just grab a chocolate bar on the go or just power through with caffeine. And you mentioned the D word, deserving, that it often comes up as I don't feel like deserve to spend the time and energy and effort on making myself the same kind of foods. 
how does that show up for women who are, you know, not quite midlife, but around sort of getting to midlife, they've had some children, they're postnatally depleted, coming into perimenopause, if they then have a mindset that I don't deserve to be well, what happens in, in your experience? What do you see? I always think that the decade, the 40s decade, and it can be, you know, a couple of years either side of that, but that's what I see predominantly in my clinic, is a window of opportunity. Mm. You know, in, it, is, it is a big decade for us. We, we may be raising children, we may be raising babies, we may be raising teenagers, we're looking at aging parents, um, we see a lot of uh, relationship challenges often for people in their 40s. There's so much going on. We can lose that decade giving to others, mm. to being in service to others. And yet, that is a, it is a significant transition for women in terms of their health because of perimenopause. This is something we're only really just starting to talk about in the last couple of years, yeah? Mm. Because no one has acknowledged it previously. Again, there's so, there was historically so much shame around menopause that women kept it quiet. I have strong memories of my mum's menopause and her tears and, you know, just she didn't talk about it with anybody. Mm. You know, things are changing. So I always invite women to say, this is a time for you to get on top of your health understand your body connect to how you're feeling what symptoms do you just put up with every month what niggle what do you call a health niggle that actually is having an impact on your life whether it's on your sex life or your social life or your professional life because you're struggling with concentration for example so mm. this is a time for you to say yes i can raise my children i can be a great mum. i can be a great boss i can be a ceo any of those things but you get to make a choice about your well-being. It can feel contentious when I say that because women will say, I don't have time for myself. I would argue what you're saying is you're deciding not to prioritize your well-being. Mm -hmm. And so that will get some women's backs up. But I do believe that. I do believe it's possible because that's what I do in my clinic. It's how I support women. We're not going to find the time. We're going to prioritize the your time in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And everyone benefits from that. So if you have a, a happier, healthier menopause transition and your, you know, your perimenopause is, is easier, everyone will benefit because, you know, we, I see so much rage and anxiety and depression in my clinic. Mm. You know, those things can be addressed and supported, but we have to decide that we're going to focus on ourselves as well and that that is okay. It's not selfish. It's not a luxury because mm. everything funnels through us as women. In most households, it funnels through the mother. So if we are energized, if we feel vibrant, if we don't feel resentful, it stands to reason that that will have a positive impact, a ripple effect on the rest of our family. Mm. And for some women, that's how they give themselves permission because they, they, they say, well, okay, well, it will benefit my whole family. But I, would, I really want them to say, I'm doing it because I deserve. I do enough for everyone else. I am enough and I deserve to feel the best I can. It's my life as well. It's not, I'm not just a mother. I'm not just a wife, I'm a daughter, a friend, a sister. Mm. It's music to my ears because it's exactly what I talk about when I work with sort of high striving women who put so much pressure on themselves and who are depleted because they give, give, give and have huge blocks around receiving and, you know, receiving compassion from others, but also giving compassion to themselves. And that can be really difficult that we sort of almost mm. like have this maternal gatekeeping of batting off any attempts of, of helping us as well. So yeah, it definitely is music to my ears around thinking, yeah, you're doing this not just because 
your children will get a get a better version of you there's less shouty mom if you are more balanced in your hormones in your mind mm. but you're doing it because you deserve to be well you deserve to have a life where you feel more at ease and more more at peace with things and it's not just about I'm nourishing myself so I can continue to pour into other people's glasses is you know you're filling up your own glass because you deserve Absolutely. to have a full cup and that can be that can be life-changing to think of it that way to think of it as self-full not selfish mm. yeah to, to be self-full is about um yeah coming to to our well-being from a place that i was uh, there's a lovely quote um she made a promise to herself to hold her well-being sacred to hold her own well-being sacred mm. and our well-being should be sacred you know i lost i've lost two close friends in the last five years both in their 40s both with three children um and that has really driven my passion for maternal well-being there's yeah. so much pressure in our society on mothering skills and not maternal well-being mm. you know for, for me that's 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 something that's that's with me every day yeah I get to be here I get to raise my children those two women don't get to raise their children mm. so I think that really changed my mindset around how I look after myself because uh, when Jo died who she was very close to me and she died in 2017 somehow there was almost uh, it felt like a like the honorable thing to do that we just pushed and pushed and pushed and you know we're all exhausted we're all knackered we're all exhausted um and it, it seems almost cavalier now looking back that we we didn't take our own health more seriously and um what happened to her was tragic but she she got flu and it turned to sepsis and she died and it happened mm. In two days, she made me dinner on the Saturday night. She, oh she died on the Tuesday afternoon. And I was so shocked to my core by her death hmm. because mums don't die, hmm. because we just, we just do it all. So hmm. I try not to bring that too much into my, you know, that story into my work, but it's in my heart all the time. And hmm. I had, all our children were very young at the time. And I look back and think, could I have done more? Could I have supported her more? Mm. Um, sorry, that's, that's very okay. difficult for you to talk about, but of course, <sighs> take your time. But I think I honour her memory in the work I do mm. because at the heart of, of what I do is teaching women mm. that there's nothing more important than their health. <laughs> you know, that's that's everything it cannot be an afterthought it cannot be an afterthought like that because we don't know no. how how long we have no. we don't know so how we think we're invincible yeah yeah we think we're invincible and we, of course we're not invincible and obviously what happened to her is a terrible tragedy um but then three years later another friend died of cancer mm. um so i i am very um cognizant that my well-being is a gift mm. We, you know, it's not a given, it's a gift, and we get to choose whether we mm. focus on it or not. So how can that be selfish? It's not. It's, it's an investment in yourself and in your family and all that you hold precious and dear because mm. we don't know how long we will have this yeah. one life and we don't know how long we will have health. And I think that's, that's one of the phrases, isn't it, that you take health for granted until you don't have it. Then you realise that it was, you know, yeah. it was very precious. So... It's a serious matter. It's not just about, you know, you eat, you eat your greens and lose some weight and get into those genes. It's about how do I live a life that is 
you know, deserving for me that I'm well in, that I can flourish in, that can have time with my children. So it's very, very, uh, you know, powerful that you share this because this is something that's come up time and time again on this podcast when we talk about purpose. It's without fail, no pun intended, it has been linked to pain. Every single business owner I have interviewed who shares their passion of, you know, what is their vision? What is their mission? What are, what are they passionate about doing? It has all come from a road of pain, some sort of loss, some sort of realization, some sort of heartache. And that's made us realize this is not how I want to live my life. I'm wanting to live it this way instead. And that is then linked to taking meaningful action to make that life happen. So I appreciate and thank you for sharing your your grief and sharing your tears on the podcast because that is so often how we come into purpose. Yeah, absolutely. She, yeah, she's with me all the time. Hmm. Um, it definitely, it definitely transformed um, how I how I led my business because hmm. um, of of losing her. Yeah, hmm. and we all have something that we hold in mind of. Why am I doing what I'm doing? For me, and this is something I don't talk about very, very often publicly, um, but my mother has, you know, chronic pain and has been ill for most of my life. And I wonder often how her story could have been different had she seen someone like you and someone like me in combination, um, healing traumas and yeah. helping her with nutritional input. Um so what watching and growing up with chronic illness um, has made me vow to not work in the way that she worked um, because it's just not conducive to me being well. So I think about that on a daily basis when I see signs in my body of fatigue or, um, you know, being frazzled, then I'm like, what do I need to dial down? What do I need to do to meet my needs? And nutrition is, is one of the things I'm exploring and being really interested and curious about rather than making that here's the one thing I should eat and let's do a weekly schedule of everything I have as an intake because it's just, here's another thing to fail at, right? Um, and we don't want that pressure. So yeah. I really want to thank you for all the wisdom you shared today. And hopefully women listening will take the pressure off themselves a little bit. But just to give them a final takeaway, uh, maybe there is a pressure you want to take off them or maybe there's a permission you want to give them. What would that be? I would invite anyone listening to take just a few minutes in a day and think about how they feel. Think about whether they feel as well as they would like. Think about what they put up with that they would love to release. And that might be pain, it might be menstrual migraines, it might be period pain, it might be anxiety, it might be low libido, all of the things that actually tax their energy each day. And think about how they would like to feel. How would you love to feel? What one word would you love to use to describe how you feel each day? And that can be really revealing. Mm. And how do you want to feel in a year from now? Do you want to feel the way you feel right now? And if the answer is a really powerful, instinctive no, then I invite you to explore what you might do to, to change how you're feeling because there are so many avenues of support. Um, and that can just be enough just to give ourselves permission to think about that and not to push it down to the bottom of our to-do list for another day, another week, another month. I've just signed a client who did a challenge of mine a year ago. When we chatted a year ago, she said, I don't have time for me. I don't have time for this. And she came back to me a year later feeling exactly the same mm. and said, I can't bear to feel this way in another year. 
Yeah. And we just started working together. Because if you change nothing, nothing will change. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Really powerful. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your vulnerability. And I've loved having you on as a guest on the show. And um, tell the listeners what your group coaching program is called and how they find you. Because I'm like, where do I sign up? I want to do this. Um, tell me a bit more about it and the way people can find you. <laughs> so I work in two ways. I have a one-to-one package called Revitalize. And then I have my six-month group online program, which is the Energized Mum Method, which is my perimenopause program. So um, you can approach me by email. You can find me on Instagram. I'm Thalia Pellegrini underscore nutrition. You can email me Thalia at thaliapellegrini.com. Reach out to me in any number of ways. You can go to my website and find ways to contact me. And just even if you're curious and you don't know whether this is right for you, but you're wondering if nutritional therapy is something you'd like to explore, just reach out. I offer free calls to everyone who is curious, um, sometimes just to give them clarity on where they are and where they might be able to to get to in their health. Um, And everyone is welcome. Fantastic. And I am now thinking just as a brainwave that I would love to collaborate more with you on Bone Bright as well to invite you in talking about nutrition and nourishing ourselves um so yes let's let's talk more about that it's lovely how we find kindred spirits and we can we can connect and collaborate so thank you so much again and uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you thank you so much for having me now that was a longer episode but sometimes we need to allow ourselves the space to really explore something to figure out what is the next helpful step how can you make healthy eating habits become like second nature simply because you're choosing to feed your body nourishing healthy food rather than making it dogmatic. So I hope that this has been inspiring for you and if you want to work with Thalia you can reach out to her. She is going to do a guest workshop for me in Burnbright so this is so exciting because it's another way for me to level up the offering I have for women who put too much pressure on themselves to get things right and perfect. And thinking holistically about health this way is so important to me. We were discussing after we finished recording that just thinking about psychology or talking therapy is not enough. And she feels the same way, that just thinking about nutrition is not enough. Working with them alongside each other, holistically looking at body and mind is so important. You'll hear soon when I'm talking to talk to a yoga teacher who's very well known and I'm just hoping to get this podcast recording in soon. Um, of how we also think about body and mind through physical movement. So stay tuned, as always. I would love you to share this episode to someone who needs to hear this. Tell other people about it. Make sure you go onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts and rate and review this podcast because it makes it more visible to others. And I spend so much time recording this because I love doing this. I would be even happier doing so if it reached even more people. It's a slow and steady wins the race when it comes to podcasting, but your help means the world to me. If you want to tell me what you think about the podcast, you can also reach out to me on info at thethomasconnection.co.uk. Info at thethomasconnection.co.uk. And until I speak to you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. 
If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. You can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.